Hey, Dallas. Hey, Sophie. You've got this strange quirk of asking academics to sign their books with a note to your daughter, Nissa. Yes, that is true. So this is the note that John Krinsky wrote for Nissa. Dear Nissa, This is the real story of Parks and Rec. With all its seedy underbelly, exploitation and humour. If you ever come to New York, this should make you want to visit our parks and make you feel uncomfortable doing so. Thanks, Sophie. Sophie Webber's a new host you'll be hearing more of on City Road. And today, Parks and Cities. Now, I imagine that few people would want to travel back in time to the rundown and quite frankly dangerous Central Park of 1970s Manhattan. But I also imagine that few people realise that a casual and relatively safe stroll through Central Park today has come at significant cost to the park's maintenance workers. In the parks, there's everything. In America today, hundreds of millions of dollars of both public and private funds are dedicated to the upkeep of urban assets like Central Park. Keeping a park in order requires not just money, but labour. The not-so-glamorous and often invisible jobs that are associated with picking up the garbage, painting benches, maintaining equipment, cleaning toilets and raking leaves. The Central Park Conservancy is a non-profit organisation that manages Central Park. It raises money for and then manages Central Park with its own staff of uh, roughly 250 workers. We're talking to John Krinsky about bringing this often invisible work into view. And what's exposed is much more than an underpaid and undervalued workforce, but a set of questions that go to the heart of urban management in America. There's a famous line in the popular American television sitcom Parks and Rec from the anti-government Libertarian Parks director Ron Swanson. And I know it's just too cheesy to recite here, but it's also just too good to pass up. In his classic deadpan monologue about government, Ron says, I've been quite open about this around the office. I don't want this parks department to build any parks because I don't believe in government. I think that all government is a waste of taxpayer money. My dream is to have the park system privatized and run entirely for profit by corporations. Well, in New York, where anything's possible, the privatization of Central Park is even stranger than Ron Swanson's fiction. The elite circles of New York are such that the parks commissioner at the time, a guy named Gordon Davis, asked Betsy Rogers to coordinate this and said, we're going to make a position for you in the parks department, and it's going to be a dual position. You're going to be the administrator of Central Park, so it's a public position, but part of what you're going to do is develop this private nonprofit organization. Today, Central Park's no longer serviced, at least not primarily serviced by public workers. Welfare to work trainees, volunteers, staff of not-for-profit parks conservancies, and even the people that have been sentenced to community service are routinely used to maintain the park, as unionised city workers are sidelined. So the Central Park Conservancy, for example, manages Central Park. It has done so by formal contract since 1997, but it was 
founded in 1980 with the idea first that it would help manage the park and the park system by the end of the fiscal crisis that uh, sort of broke upon New York or the New York was forced into in the mid-1970s, it meant that city services were completely decimated and uh, parks maintenance was as well. New York's fiscal crisis of the 1970s was followed by the rise of neoliberal ideas around urban governance. And by the 1990s, the park's maintenance workers were looking very different to previous decades. There had been massive job cuts, etc. And the Central Park Conservancy came together. George Soros, who was a neighbor of the park, and Richard Gilder, who was actually a, a right-wing neighbor of the park. Nevertheless, it collaborated for several years already to fund a, a nonprofit that would that actually bought equipment for the the park. And they joined with a couple of other volunteer efforts under the the guidance of someone named Betsy Rogers, who is a uh, actually an urban planner and a, and already written a history of Central Park. And they they put their efforts together and and at the behest of the city formed the Central Park Conservancy. And they got a lot of philanthropic support. So they're more philanthropic. John and Maud spent four years doing field work in New York, and they set out to investigate the transformation of Central Park from the ground up. They found that the work of maintaining Central Park is caught up within the broader macro-policy trends of welfare reform, civic engagement, criminal justice, and the rise of public-private partnerships. How in the wake of the fiscal crisis in the 1970s, the city started to consolidate our so-called broadband certain job descriptions so that managers got more flexibility. Uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't say as a city worker, that's not in my job description because all of a sudden it was in your job description. And that facilitated a move from uh, what used to be where they, they would put parks workers in specific parks and uh, they would have responsibility to clean those parks um, to mobile crews where they'd be driven around in vans and hit a lot of different parks. And what that enabled was both cutting staff, but also uh, replacing a lot of the formerly regular worker staff with workfare workers when, when workfare came on. And while the Central Park Conservancy's roots trace back to the fiscal crisis of the 1970s... Fast forward 25, 30, now 40, uh, well, 35 years or plus... The, um, the workforce of about 300 workers in Central Park, and this is a huge park, is now down to about 275, 250 of whom are Central Park Conservancy workers. So the, the city allowed its own workforce in Central Park to diminish through attrition while cent- the Central Park Conservancy you know, grew its workforce to equivalent size. So who really benefits from the public work in parks? It's a question that forces us to think about the way we govern the public and private spaces of the city, and who benefits and loses out in the process. John and Maud start with an investigation into the changes in the workplace, changes to the way the park maintenance work is undertaken and managed, and the changing profile of the workers. We think that neoliberalism is uh, actually fairly rarely done in a classic way. 
here would be the sort of caricatured version, I yeah. think. Um, and, and this forms an interesting part of the story as well, because alongside this non-profitization, this privatization through non-profitization, in 1996, the city thought, okay, with not with Central Park, but with a lot of the rest of the parks, under Mayor Giuliani, who would have been a, a, somebody sympathetic to neoliberalism, was somebody sympathetic to neoliberalism, they said, okay, we're going to experiment with privatizing parks maintenance, and we're going to take a few parks districts. The, the park system is split up into 59 districts plus a whole bunch of other parks. And we're going to take a few of these districts out in the borough of Queens, and we're going to let out management contracts with private landscaping firms. And we're going to see whether we save money. And did it work? And in fact, they saved money, and the maintenance was uh, the maintenance was done up to the, the regular standard. And then, as one of the middle, sort of upper middle managers in the Parks Department told us in our first interview, actually, he said, uh, "But we had something the private companies didn't have: free labor." Mm-hmm. And because what they realized was, especially after welfare reform had gone through on the national level, they had the opportunity to put tens of thousands of people on welfare to work for nothing. This new workforce was the product of neoliberal management strategies that had filtered down through the private sector and into the not-for-profit organizations. In, in New York, the, it was a sort of a pure workfare. You worked as a condition of receiving benefits, right? So there wasn't any necessarily, any idea necessarily that you were going to go from welfare into some sort of paid work. This wasn't paid work and you weren't really getting training. So this was just working as a condition of receiving welfare. And what they realized was, was that that was actually far cheaper than privatizing. And the broader political aim of these neoliberal welfare policies has always been about managing the poor by employing them into a system that reduces the overall cost to business by paying the workers poorly or not at all. So, I mean, workfare is one of these classic neoliberal programs, but this is the sort of classic application of workfare in the context of neoliberalism such that the workfare workers who were sort of nominally in the private and se- in the public sector are competing with the private sector and winning out because you don't have to pay them. The the only people that you had to pay a little more were the union workers who were supervising the workfare workers. So we tell a story in the book also about some of how this came to pass as well and and this is a story that goes back uh, 15 years earlier even than that. So This is achieved by eroding the unionized labor and former public working conditions in ways that deeply segment the workforce. And this becomes a key management tool that allows for, and I quote the neoliberal mantra, organizational flexibility and efficiency. The other cast of characters is this vast array of workers. So you've got uh, at the probably the lowest end in terms of, or the farthest end in terms of being unpaid and pretty much coerced, you've got workfare. Now, 
under our latest mayor, um, Bill de Blasio, he's actually ended the workfare program. Um, that was one of the progressive things that he's done. He hasn't been a, he's disappointed many progressive hopes, but this was, this is one of the things he did. Um, there are also community service sentences. And as a proportion of the free laborers that now clean New York City's parks, they've actually grown. So these are people who are sentenced to community service for misdemeanors by the court. Now, they typically work alongside job training program workers, who are workers who are coming off of welfare, who are in six-month jobs. 75% of them are women. 90% of them are Black and Latina. And they're coming off of welfare into six-month jobs. Sometimes they can be extended to nine months. And all of them make up what are usually the mobile crews that get driven around in a van and sweep up parks and playgrounds and keep them clean. Then you've got the regular parks workers in a number of different civil service grades from sort of the sort of entry level to the, the ones who are um, a little more skilled. And then you have, uh, you know, they have a commercial driver's license. So they're the ones who actually drive the big garbage trucks. And then you've got a few levels of supervisors. Then you have a parallel workforce in the private, the, the private nonprofits. And so when you think about the role of nonprofits in, in sort of neoliberalism and the, the neoliberalized state, I think part of what we're trying to get at there as well is what Antonio Gramsci called the integral state and the, the way in which civil society and the state become really deeply intertwined with each other. So while we often think about neoliberalism or privatization as a move away from government, What we have in this case is the integration of state and civil society into the privatization of the maintenance of Central Park. Even in 2007, the the city body that uh, was organized to organize volunteers, uh, it's a nonprofit as well. The city formed a nonprofit to do this. They counted 1.7 million hours of volunteer work in the parks. And that translates into roughly 950 full-time equivalents. And if you think about a parks department where the base number of regular workers uh, doing work was roughly 3,000, you get a sense of the enormity, the relative enormity of of these programs and and the importance of, of them. So you've got this vast number of volunteers as well. So we've talked about the job roles, but what about the parks conservancies? Are they all the same? Yeah, well, in, in the early 1980s, the city uh, created the first three conservancies, and they were really very different. One was in Central Park, so it's this massive park in the middle of Manhattan, surrounded uh, at that point on three sides and now on four sides with some of the most expensive real estate in the, in the, in the U.S. and probably in the world. And so they had rich neighbors like George Soros that they could raise money from. In fact, actually, uh, Yoko Ono was the first million-dollar donor to the Central Park Conservancy. Um, As in she donated a million dollars? Yes. Right. So what's the total funds of these organizations? What sort of operating budgets do they have? Uh, in the tens of millions, of uh, the close to getting close to $100 million a year. Um, and uh, 75% of which is, um, is privately raised. I'd have to check that figure, yeah. but the, uh, 
So, so the city set up Central Park Conservancy, but it also set up the Prospect Park Alliance. And it was the same, same arrangement. A city employee was charged with administering the park, coordinating the, administ- uh, the, the management of the park, and then also charged with forming a nonprofit that would help steward the park uh, in, into the future. And that model is very different. They didn't have, I mean, now Brooklyn is very wealthy, but at the time it really wasn't as much. And so they had to rely a lot more on volunteers. So they're the ones who really, really developed a strong volunteer program. And in fact, the former head of the Prospect Park Alliance did a great deal to train other sort of friends of groups that the the city started to uh, help form in the 1990s all around the city. There's uh, uh, several hundred of them now. Really start to train them in terms of coordinating volunteers and this sort of thing. So we call Central Park Conservancy the sort of quintessential philanthropic conservancy, while Prospect Park Alliance is a civic, more civic conservancy. You're listening to City Road on 2SER, 107.3 FM in Sydney, and you can also find us at cityroadpod.org and on Twitter, at cityroadpod. We're talking to John Krinsky about the management and maintenance of Central Park in New York City. And now, the conversation turns to Parkside real estate value. Clean parks really enhance the real estate value of the surrounding property. If you've never seen an aerial photo of Central Park, Google it now. And what's striking in these photos is the sheer size of Central Park in relation to the rest of Manhattan. The neoliberalisation of park management underwrites the value of the real estate that encircles Central Park. So this means that public parks are not only real estate assets in their own right, they produce real estate value for the parkside property owners. It's always been the case that proximity to a park generally has been good for real estate values. And they just, the sort of parks movement in the 19th century discovered that kind of by accident. In fact, there were a whole bunch of real estate owners around Central Park that were absolutely aghast that the city was taking so much land out of circulation. And then after Central Park developed, they said, oh my goodness, this is the best thing that's ever happened to us. By looking at the changing governance of park maintenance, John and Maud unearth a new urban order, one that's based on non-profit partnerships and the rhetoric of the responsible citizen, which, in this case, is a citizen who is low-paid or not paid at all. Playing along to this classic neoliberalism script, this low or no-paid work both reinforces the workers' domination in the workplace while simultaneously increasing the value of parkside property. Right, exactly, exactly. And so, and, and Mayor Bloomberg, the, uh, the big developer mayor, really did both. And he, he spent a lot of money developing waterfront parks. And so, so the, the thing is, though, if you're around a park that is really poorly maintained, that can actually be a problem because poor maintenance also signals usually that you're also in a poor neighborhood, um, and there are good reasons for that in terms of the, the budgetary allocations for, for maintaining parks. Um, but 
these are also places that people congregate if they're you know if they're selling drugs or this sort of thing. So so a or at least people are worried about that. So a poorly maintained park doesn't do as much for real estate values as a well maintained park. So cleaning the park is not just about what's happening inside the park. It's also about what's happening in the city. And moving on homeless people becomes part of the duties of the maintenance workers. A job training program worker who was in what's called the Parks Enforcement Patrol. And uh, they're unarmed, but they, they, um, they're meant to sort of police the way that people use the park. And she got into an argument with her partner, who was a permanent uh, PEP officer, and um, who was being kind of rough with somebody who was sleeping on a bench. And, and she said, you don't have to treat him that way. And they got into an argument, and she ended up calling her kids who lived nearby, told them to bring down food for this guy. And uh, they went in front to their supervisor later to try to work out this, uh, or actually I think her partner was trying to get her kicked off. And the supervisor said, no, actually, you did the right thing. And so so that there's definitely a direction sort of from on high to try to make sure that people use the park in appropriate ways. And one of the things that you'll find if you go to any park in New York is a very large and prominent uh, placard at the entrance about the rules of using the park. In this sense, the Central Park Conservancy exercises significant influence over the park's image, the activities that are permitted and not permitted in the park, and who's allowed into the park and who is not. The wealthy individuals and corporate actors that direct significant philanthropic funding into the Central Park Conservancy hold considerable sway over this public space. But the public space in turn rewards these investments with a financial return on the real estate holdings around the park. So, so yes, there's a sort of social cleansing. There's, 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 there's absolutely that. Um, but but the, the other sort of piece of this is that as the unit cost of cleaning the park gets reduced because you have the volunteers, you have the workfare workers, you have the job training program workers who aren't paid the same, and the community service entities. So as the unit costs of cleaning the park gets reduced, you nevertheless get this massive augmentation in real estate values so that there's a kind of uh, indirect exploitation that's going on. It's an urban governance system that would have Ron Swanson giggling. Like he giggled when the government auditors announced that they were going to gut the parks department with a machete. But Chris said that you just had to, you know, tinker with things. Yeah, he said that because that sounds a lot better than we're going to gut it with a machete. Okay? (laughs) And we might tweet out a link to that video. John, thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much. You've been listening to City Road on 2SCR, 107.3 FM in Sydney. You can subscribe to the podcast and find all our episodes at cityroadpod.org. We're proudly part of the Community Radio Network.